0: Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church and we pray that through the preaching of God's word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. 527. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and we'll um, go ahead and... So I know that we uh, were in Luke last week, and um, prior to that had been out of Luke's gospel for a little over a month. So just before we look at this passage in front of us this morning, I want to just remind you of, of Luke's account to this point, what he has done, what he is wanting us to see. And uh, we started the, the gospel account with two birth announcements, uh, and and both of them being extraordinary. And you remember the story of of, uh, Zacharias in the temple. He is chosen to go in and offer the incense, and he gets the amazing announcement that he and his wife in their old age will have a son, and that he will prepare the way for the Messiah. And of course, we know this to be John the Baptist. And then Mary also gets this unique birth announcement from the angel Gabriel. And uh, yet her son, being more extraordinary, will be virgin-born. He will have no earthly father. Uh, Her son will be called the Son of God. And uh, we see that then Luke runs in parallel Jesus and John. And yet Jesus always being more uh, emphasized, more glorious than John. And John fades out of the picture as he, in baptizing Christ, identifies him as the Messiah to Israel. He announces to Israel, I have fulfilled my purpose, I am now identifying this man as the Son. And the Father even speaks from heaven, uh, acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, that this is my Son in whom I am well, pleased. listen to him, and the Spirit of God ascending. And from that point, we, have, we had witnesses Um, that would also affirm the identity of Christ. As Mary and Joseph uh, begin raising this child, we see Jesus as a young, probably 12-year-old boy, identifying God as his father as he is lingering in the temple. Uh, We saw Anna and we saw Simeon identify Jesus as the Messiah that they were waiting for. And then as we get into the the ministry of Jesus, as he grows and he enters into his earthly ministry, um, Luke wants us to understand the identity of Christ, the fullness of his authority. And we have all these different uh, ways in which Luke demonstrates for us the authority of Christ over all things. He has authority over disease. We saw that as he heals many, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. We saw his authority over demons, that Jesus casts out unclean spirits and they immediately obey the voice of Jesus. We saw that Jesus has authority over creation as he uh, instructs his disciples to go back into the water, uh, into the deep, and to cast their nets and they catch the great catch of fish. Jesus demonstrates his authority over creation itself. And we saw last week Um, Perhaps you could almost say even more profoundly than than some of the other areas, Jesus demonstrates authority over sin, over even our own condemnation um, because of our sin. Jesus declares the paralytic to be forgiven and uh, also then heals him. And so Jesus, there should be no question in our hearts and minds this morning um, that Jesus truly has all authority. There is no area in our life and our society that Jesus has uh, that does does not have authority over. He has ultimate, supreme authority. And so, you might ask the question then: Well, what would be a proper response to such a man? What would be a, what would be an appropriate reaction to this Messiah who has? All authority, and many ways. That's what we see this morning, as we look at Jesus, the friend of sinners, call a man from a place of sin, from a place of corruption, into righteousness, into a life of obedience and discipleship. And so, a little bit of background before we we look at this call of Christ. We look at some truths about the call of Christ. Um, in light of this passage here. A little bit of of just information that will help us understand the setting here. First of all, we have this description, tax collector. Now, we don't get a lot of information from Luke. What does that that entail in that culture? Um, What what connotations were tied to a man who was a tax collector? That was his vocation. Um, It's uh, perhaps sort of some similarities. I mean, generally, if someone you know, you get a letter in the mail from Revenue Canada, you're usually not jumping up and rejoicing. There's usually this little bit of, you know, kind of cringe as, as you open the letter thinking, oh, great, how much do I owe this time, you know, or, or what kind of trouble am I got myself into? What did I miss on my tax return? You, you generally think of, of encountering tax collectors as a negative experience. But the, the, uh, the connotation in, in, the, in the first century in Palestine, it would have been much greater um, these guys were not just, you know, disliked. They were despised. Um, at this time, what happened was you had the Roman government who, who ruled these provinces, if you will, these regions, and they would offer these contracts out to the highest bidder or whoever had the money to pay the contract to collect taxes for them. And there, there wasn't a lot of uh, guidelines for many of them as to exactly how much or exactly you know what their limitations were. If they were able to buy the the rights to collect taxes for Rome, they actually had a lot of liberty to to go about that however they really felt they could get away with, and um, and so they had to have money. You had to basically sell yourself to Rome in a sense. You become you become an extension of the Roman Empire doing their dirty work for them of collecting taxes from the citizens from all of those in the various regions. And there was two basic types of tax collectors. Um, You know, we see some similarities today. You had those that would collect the land tax and income tax. And uh, these were were people that would um, make sure that, you know, property taxes and people were taxing off of what they were making were, were being collected. But they weren't seen as the bottom of the pile. There was another group who were also tax collectors and um, these people um, also had to purchase the rights to collect taxes but they could tax for for all the kind of menial things. Maybe it was uh, for trade or for for produce or maybe a cart that you had could be taxed. Um, All kinds of of various reasons these people could, could tax their fellow citizens. And uh, like I said, they, they had some freedom from Rome, so they have the stamp of Rome on what they're doing. So if you encounter one of these guys on the road and he demands taxes for your cart that you're you know, making your way to the market with, you have to pay or else you might have Rome uh, knocking on your door and breaking your legs or whatever else they would need to do to force you to pay your taxes. So they could get creative, you could say. Now I know that's hard for us to imagine, people who enjoy inventing taxes on things that don't make sense, like, you know, uh, I had to think of the parallel of them seeing some guys sitting around a fire and, and saying, hey, that, that, that smoke coming off the fire, I think we need to tax you on that smoke and maybe calling it something like, I don't know, a carbon tax or something. You know, we can, we can understand some of these frustrations that they would have had with people who enjoyed inventing new ways to tax people. But also understand, so not only are they they despised by the citizens, these people, because of their freedom uh, from Rome, were known crooks. They were known to abuse this authority, to tax beyond what they were supposed to, for their own gain. They would line their pockets with taxes that they had invented, in a sense. So this is Levi, and on top of that, he's Jewish, Which means for him to sell himself to Rome and do their dirty work, uh, he is a traitor. He would have been cut off probably from the synagogues. He would have been seen as someone who had forsaken his birthright like Esau and had sold himself to Rome. Um, No doubt he would have brought shame on his family in doing this, forsaking the Jewish people and working now for Rome, uh, using his own people for his own gain. And so it's hard to overemphasize th- how much they despise these tax collectors. And we see that. You kids know the story of Zacchaeus, right? What, what was it about Zacchaeus? He, ha- he had uh, something unique about him. What was it? Yeah? He was a wee little man, right? But, oh, they hated Zacchaeus. Why? Because he was a tax collector. And in the same way, um, Zacchaeus was, was despised. Now, those who collected these like, random taxes, not land and income tax, would sometimes hire people to sit at their booths, and they would set up these booths all over, and then people coming by would, would, would you know, be taxed. So this is probably Levi. He's probably someone who uh, maybe has like a subcontractor you could think of for these big tax guys, and he is there working. Um... It's one thing to get a letter in, in the mail saying you owe taxes on your land or whatever. But you could imagine if every time, you know, your, your, your furnace kicked on and somebody wanted carbon tax, that, that someone comes to your door and knocks on your door and says, okay, you know, that'll be $50, I see that running. Uh, you could imagine how you'd start to feel when you saw that person, or if, if they came to tax you on your land, if it was the same person. Well, this is, this is Levi. He is the face of the Roman Empire. He is the face of the abuse. He is the face of the frustration that that they would have targeted at him. And so this is a little bit of the background of this this job that he has. Now, Levi, um, and, and Luke uses the name Levi, but who is this? Because you'll read many lists of the disciples. We don't find a Levi listed there. But if you flip back just for a moment to um, Matthew 9, Matthew records this same event in the life of Christ when he calls this tax collector. But listen to what he says in Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining. So Matthew records the exact same story, the exact same count, although he identifies himself as that man. You say, well, why would Luke say Levi and Matthew say Matthew? Well, you know, it's not uncommon in this day to have multiple names. Sometimes it's a Greek name and a Hebrew name. Sometimes there's a name change like we saw with Simon Peter. Upon his conversion, you could say, Jesus said, you are now be called Peter. And, and uh, others like Saul, who was converted, encountering Christ on the road to Damascus, then became known as Paul. So it's not all that uncommon for someone to have multiple names. Um, Matthew would be his, his Hebrew name, meaning gift of God. So no doubt that would be a name you would want to a- identify with. And Luke is also writing to to Gentiles. He's writing to a non-Jewish audience, so he's, he's trying, to, well, specifically to Theopolis, but who, who's probably Roman, so he would want to somewhat identify with that group, so he may use the, the, uh, the non-Jewish name, or he may use a name that was more his common name, um, Levi. Um, so anyways, uh, this is Matthew, the gospel writer, and um, identified here as Levi. So then as we go on, um, I want to ask the question to us this morning, what are the truths about the way in which Jesus calls? What do we learn about the call of Jesus from this passage, about the, the nature of his call upon, upon his disciples first and foremost here? But I think there are principles that would, would apply to all who are called by Christ And we will see, but this story should encourage us. Um, We all probably have those who we think of as beyond the reach of God, beyond the grace of God, beyond the forgiveness of God. But this story of Levi, of Matthew, shows us that no one is beyond that reach. And so first of all, we see this morning about the call of Christ is that it is a sovereign call. It's a sovereign call that Jesus himself initiates, uh, that God initiates, you could say. There's nothing in Levi here that would, would cause him to gravitate to Christ. He is a crook. He is despised by his people. He is an outcast. He has willfully cut himself off from even the synagogue, the place in which they would have access to the word of God, to the teaching of God. He, He had removed himself from the covenant people. And so for Jesus to call this man is somewhat strange. It's not at all who we would expect Jesus to call. We would expect him to go to the synagogue and find the one who has perfect attendance maybe and who's memorized all of the, you know, the, they, at that time they would have memorized probably the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible. Maybe he would, you know, line them up and see who could recite it the fastest and choose him. But that's not, that's not the call of Christ. It comes according to his own pleasure and it comes sovereignly as he himself initiates the call to Levi. Um, this is a a mysterious reality to the gospel, that as we look for reasons as to why God would would raise somebody up, would call them from darkness into light, there is no there's no reason humanly speaking, and I think many of us could identify with that. You look at you look at your own life and you feel like there's nothing within me that is that is, you know, very appealing. There's, there, I, I, I struggle with sin, I struggle with pride, I struggle with, with anger, with lust. I mean, what, what is it that would draw God to us? And the only answer that really suffices is, it is His, according to His own good pleasure. It is according to His own purpose, His own plan. And He delights to call the weak and the foolish and the unclean and the outcast so that he would demonstrate his grace to a watching world. Uh, there uh, is an amazing insight into this. And I think, you know, initially it's, you could think of it as the disciples, the call of the disciples, but it reaches beyond the disciples um, to all who are called. But in John chapter 6, when you ask the question, why would Jesus call this man... Um, we see this amazing insight into the call of God in John 6 as he's talking to his disciples. And um, he tells them that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger in John six thirty-five, And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So there's the gospel promise. If you come, if you, if you, if you come to Christ hungering for real bread, you will be satisfied. You will, your, your thirst will be quenched. But then he says in verse 36, but I said you have seen me and yet not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So when we talk of the call of Christ, there is a sense in which Jesus understands there are these whom the Father has given to him. And Jesus says, the, my, the, my purpose in coming is to complete my, the will of my Father, and his will is that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. And even at the end of his ministry in John 17, Jesus in his prayer, the high priestly prayer, says, Father... All that you have given me, I have spoken your word to you. I have kept them, with the exception of Judas, who was the son of destruction, who was given to Christ, specifically, that he would betray him. So we get into this, this understanding of, of the call of God, and, and you start to realize, you're like, where, where, where's Levi in all of this? I mean, we definitely see a response from Levi, Matthew. We see We see him acting... But this call comes according to the good pleasure of Christ, according to the sovereign will of God. And many theologians make a distinction which can be helpful in the general call and the effective call. Now, there's the gospel call that goes out to all creation in which we are to be doing We're to be taking the gospel to the four corners of the earth, to every living soul. We should desire to proclaim the gospel, but we know, sadly, men do not all come. Many turn their hearts away. Many harden themselves at the gospel of Christ, even as these Pharisees would do. And so there's this distinction that's made that can be helpful, this effective call, this, the call of the Spirit, where, where the Spirit of God begins to transform, begins to awaken a soul. It is that picture of Jesus standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, and by name saying, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, hearing that call of Christ, hearing his name spoken by the Messiah who spoke all creation into existence, he rises up from the dead and walks out of the tomb. That's what I'm talking about here when we see Levi sitting there in his iniquity, in his corruption, at his tax booth, and the call of Christ coming to him and and awakening him and him rising up and leaving that place. This is the the glorious work of God in salvation. Um, So first of all, we see that the call is a a sovereign call. It's a call that Christ initiates according to the will of his Father. But secondly, we've already seen this a little bit, it's an effective call, and it's a powerful call. The the word that says, leaving everything he rose and followed him, uh, followed him could also be translated even as begins to follow him. It has this idea that, that it is a, a pursuit that, that Matthew begins that will then last the rest of his life. It's not as though he, he has a one-time act where he stands up for a moment and he follows Christ for a few days and then, you know, after a while he's back at the tax booth and back uh, enjoying his sin. Uh, I'm not saying collecting taxes is sin. I'm just saying the corruption that he would have would have uh, done it with is the sin. So don't hear hear me to say those who collect taxes are evil. Um, but those who distort the truth for gain, uh, that's what is evil. But we see this effective call. He rises up and he begins to follow Christ. And we know that he becomes one of the disciples. Uh, we, we don't know a lot about Matthew, we don't get a lot of records of what he said, what he did. Um, it is believed that he was martyred for his faith in Christ, uh, as, as all the apostles likely were, except for probably John, who they believe died of an old age. Um, but we certainly have a great testimony of Matthew's faithfulness, don't we? What, what did Matthew do? What, kids, what did Matthew, what did Matthew do? Matthew the disciple first book of the New Testament. What's that? What's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew, right? He wrote a gospel record of the life of Christ. This is the man, the tax collector. What a tremendous blessing to the church. What a tremendous blessing to the kingdom of God. This man, probably one of the first gospel writers to record the life and work of Jesus Christ. And you see the amazing effect that this call had upon his life, turning from a life of corruption, of abusing people, of forsaking his own birthright, to then writing a gospel record aimed at the Jewish people. Matthew writes primarily that the Jews would see Christ as Messiah. And so it's an amazing uh, work of God in the heart of this man, and the effective calling of Jesus upon him in transforming his life um, I know we you'll probably hear me come back to this passage many times we actually were looking at it even uh, last week in in uh, in this, the youth class there in first corinthians um, I mean, sorry, I always say first and I mean second second Corinthians four we find this amazing description of what happens in conversion, what happens in this call of god and and Paul is telling the people that our message is veiled to those who are perishing in second Corinthians four And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And listen to what he says. I just, this is so profound. For God, who has said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you see somebody rising up from their sin, when you see someone repenting from their sin, you are not merely seeing a man exercising his willpower. What you are seeing is the same God who said, let there be light, and light appears that God is speaking and saying, let there be light, let them see Christ as glorious, and they rise up. This is the amazing work of God in the gospel call, and there is is no other way for us to explain it. Because if we are truly dead in our trespasses and sins, even as Levi was, if we are truly Slaves to our sin, as Jesus would say, and Paul says in in Ephesians, then we are unable to break ourselves out of death. How does a dead man rise? He cannot, unless the gospel, the power of God, comes to him, and the Spirit of God raises him to life. Now, some would say, well, if that's the case, then why why would we share the gospel? Why would, we, why would we evangelize if it's God's work? And the reason that we evangelize is because God has appointed the means to this conversion, to this call. It's, it's through our voices as we share the word of God. He, using that means, uh, awakens dead sinners to life. We have been given a part to play in this great work but we are not the authors of the salvation or of the faith. That's actually, in many ways, you read some of the uh, biographies of missionaries. You know, we're, we're coming up to uh, Christmas time and even the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and we think of those, William Carey, or those who've given their lives to the gospel. For many of them, do you know what what gave them the courage to go That it emboldened them to go to the mission field and lay down their lives, it was that they understood that the conversion of men's souls is not dependent on them. It's not, and that's good news because it means that all we are called to do is faithfully proclaim the news, point to Christ, say, come follow Jesus, And then God is the one who takes that message and awakens dead sinners to life. And so it actually liberates the evangelist. It liberates the missionary who may feel like, I don't very adequately explain the gospel. I I still struggle with this. I don't feel like I really communicate one-on-one the gospel to someone very well, and that could be a discouragement to us. But to know that it's this call of Jesus in the inner man that really brings this transformation that we see in Levi should give us courage and embolden us to share the gospel, to share the good news. Um, We see this effective call, and Luke loves this imagery of following Christ, immediately following Christ. We saw the exact same thing when he called the the fishermen um, We find just previously, remember in in chapter 5, and they have the great catch of fish, and after they come to shore and they realize that this is Jesus, we're told that they left everything and followed Him. This is a proper response to Christ, a proper response to this man who has all authority, who is the Messiah. And so, even we know that later in Luke 9... You know this passage, and this is where I say it. It doesn't just apply to Levi um, here in in Luke, but to all of us. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. And here is Levi, no doubt a man who was gaining the world, probably great amounts of wealth. I don't imagine he had to worry about retirement or about uh, where his next meal was coming from. And yet, he forsakes all of that to follow Christ because he sees what is truly valuable. He sees what is eternally valuable. He sees Christ himself. And let us, let us not make light of that. I, I, I don't want to say that a proper application would be for all of us to sell all of our homes and quit our jobs and, and, and all of us go into the, the mission field, although that might be a proper response for some. But the call of God is never to a task only. And and for you young people, you're wondering, what am I supposed to do? What's God's call on my life? What is is the, the task that I'm supposed to give myself to? But that's never primarily the call. It is a call to what? Come, follow me, Jesus said. Christ, Christ is the one to whom we are called. And so that is something that we are called to, whether you're farming or pulling or you're a mechanic or driving a truck or a missionary at home with with upset children, with dirty diapers, whatever the Lord has called you, you you have this overarching call to come to Christ and to seek Him and to know Him. And... uh, well, we're almost out of time, aren't we? We have so far the call of Jesus is a sovereign call. It is an effective call. Um, it is a call that also offends the legalist. The grace of God offends the legalist. And you can't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. We, we know that story where the, the one son is... He's, he's just a terrible son. He, he demands that his father pay him all his inheritance while he's alive. That's something that generally happens once the father is dead. And so the son essentially says to his dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, can I have my money now? And the son takes his money and goes and squanders it on, on uh, all kinds of foolishness. But upon coming back and experiencing the grace of his father, the mercy of his father, the elder brother is upset and says, That's not fair. I've been here working faithfully, and now you're throwing a party for his return? That is the picture of the Pharisees here, of the legalists, who witness the grace of God, the mercy of God, and yet in their hearts they resent it and they hate it. Why? Because they have never experienced it. They've actually convinced themselves that they are saved by their own works, that their own righteousness is actually acceptable in God's sight. And so these men see what Jesus is doing and he goes back to the house of Levi who has thrown a party. He is, he's, he's getting out of this, this business. He's throwing a party to celebrate what's happening. He invites all of his tax collector friends. You know, you can just imagine the crowd that was there and the things they would probably talk about and boast about, like, you know, I, I taxed someone yesterday for their horse. Can you believe I got away with that? And, oh, man, you should have seen this guy that, that we beat up because he wouldn't pay the taxes for, for his, his uh, barley, you know? And, and this is who Jesus is now associating with, and, and Levi wants them to meet this Messiah, and yet <clears throat> the legalists, the Pharisees, are angry. And so Jesus... Why are you fellowshipping with these people? and they're offended at his kindness, at his mercy? And so we're' we're, we're prone to this. I think you know, here I am a pastor's kid, and uh, you know, I remember at Bible school, and this happens at Bible school. You know, there's probably you know something wrong, but I had friends who told me I needed to strengthen my testimony. That when I told people how I came to the Lord, you know, I was young, and, and I, I, I remember being baptized, but I was almost, I would say, a bit too young because I, I, I have a, kind of a foggy memory. Um, but I, as long as I can remember, there's been this, this faith in the Lord. He's, he's real. He has died to, to save me, and, uh, and that's about my testimony. And they would say, well, you need to strengthen that a bit. You know, you need to go out and, and and why don't you, you know, at least try getting drunk once or you know, try doing, you know, breaking and entering or something, and then you can talk about and I know they were joking, but uh, you know, that's kind of the attitude sometimes. Don't do that, young people. Don't try to strengthen your your testimony. The the greatest testimony is those who uh, you know I think of the 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 even like Samuel um, what a beautiful thing to be brought up in the house of the lord I think that 's something we should give thanks for but either way it 's all the grace of god there 's nothing to boast in 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 me i 'm no more worthy than the prostitute but you see if you can 't if you don 't see that, if you think that well, my family name or my works or my social class or my job or my uh, intelligence or whatever it might be, if if you think that contributes to your favor before God, then you are going to despise the grace of God upon those who don't deserve it. And we, we you know, it's hard to find a real good parallel with this tax collector, but we could think about maybe it's a Maybe it's a boss who you feel like has mistreated you, who has, who has abused his authority or has, has manipulated you for his own gain. Or maybe it's even, we can think of political leaders who notoriously were upset with. Generally, you can think of someone who you're, you like to complain about and then ask yourself, how would you feel if God saved them, if he delivered them from their bondage? Uh, I think even for me, one of the, the uh, people I struggle with the most would be those like someone that has been guilty of sexual crime. To me, that is one of the most lowly, grotesque things. And, uh, you know, I would, if I had the authority, I would say maybe we should, you know, these people should be uh, executed to some degree. Those who would take advantage of other people's bodies like that. And, and, if, and yet... If God is pleased to rescue them, is, to, is pleased to save them, is pleased to forgive them, will we rejoice? Can we rejoice at the terrorist who is redeemed and brought to Christ? Can we rejoice at... Maybe someone caught in in the sin of homosexuality. Can we rejoice if God delivers them and rescues them? Someone who has maybe had an abortion, can we rejoice if God delivers them and rescues them and forgives them and calls them His own child? Prostitutes or or drug dealers or thieves, these people who we love to despise, have we become so arrogant of our own self-righteousness that we cannot rejoice with those who experience the grace of God. I pray that is not the case. I pray that we have so experienced the forgiveness of God in our own hearts that we know it is all by His grace. I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve to be called His son. It's, it's His grace. And so if He pours that grace upon another, then I too can rejoice. And so the, the call of Jesus is... Sovereign call, it's an effective call. It's a call that offends the self-righteous, the legalist, and it is a call for all who are sick, all who are sinners. It is a call for them. Jesus says, I didn't come here to call the righteous. I didn't come to heal the healthy. I came to call the sinners, and I came to heal the sick. And so at this point, An awareness of your need is really the beginning of the Lord's blessing. That's even how you see the uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. This is where we are in a place to respond to Christ, to come to Him, to receive from Him. And it's not just for unbelievers. Uh, We think, oh, this is just a conversion that we are aware of our need of Christ. No, it's a daily taking up your cross and following Him. When was the last time you were broken over your sin before Christ to where you cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner? Or have you convinced yourself that I'm doing pretty good? I think, you know, maybe I've actually... Been fully sanctified, and I could just basically be ushered into heaven and be glorified at any point, right? Sometimes we have this idea that I'm pretty much there. I've, I think I've actually arrived somehow. But oh, that we would humble ourselves before the Word of God day after day, that we might be exposed in our need. And this is even for one another um, as we see sin in one another, as you see sin in me. We need to come graciously and point that out because that's one of the ways in which we can, can be exposed of our need. You know, it's, it's like laying under the x-ray machine where you're not quite sure where, what's causing the pain, but you feel the symptoms. Maybe you know I'm angry or I, I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of worry. I, I have a lot of lust. And I don't know where this is coming from. Those are all fruit sins. They are byproducts of a deeper sin in your heart. Maybe it's the sin of pride. Maybe it's something that you have put in the place of God in your heart, an idol. Maybe the the lust for money and until that is exposed, until you humble yourself and lay under the, the x-ray of God's word, until you uh, allow the, the, the ultrasound of, of the scriptures and of Christian fellowship to expose you, you may go on thinking yourself well. Like King David, who had committed a grievous sin against God. He had taken another man's wife and, and, and treated her as his own. And he was going about life quite normally until Nathan the prophet came and rebuked him and shared a story with him at which he still couldn't see what he had done. This is where we need one another, that we would see our need of Christ and we would flee to him, that we would be healed. C.S. Lewis said this once, he said, "'Christianity tells people to repent "'and promises them forgiveness.' It has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. And so a great prayer to pray is, Lord, show me my need. Show me my sin. Show me my sickness. I I can't even see that properly unless you help me. And then as you see it, confess it to God and he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us for all in righteousness because Jesus Christ is the one who not only calls but he himself paid the price for our ransom on the cross he bought the right to forgive us with his own blood and sealed it with his resurrection and so there's no excuse to not come you can't say well my sin's too great He can't possibly forgive the greatness of my sin. There is no sin too great because Jesus has offered the greatest price of all and that is his own life. So I encourage you to come to him, confess your sin, be healed of him. Ask the Lord for a heart that desires the broken and the sick to find him, to to also be healed with him. Let us close with a word of prayer and we will celebrate the, the Lord's table together and um, then we will be finished. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father in heaven, I know that nothing that I can say can be of any true benefit to these dear folks if you do not, by your Spirit, move upon them, Lord. If you do not take your word and bring life, bring encouragement, bring a deep sense of peace within their souls. Lord, that is your work. And so we ask that you would be pleased to do it in our midst. Lord, that you would continue to to sanctify us, expose us of our sin, Lord, keep us from becoming like the Pharisees who have no capacity to rejoice at your grace because we're so proud of our own self-righteousness, Lord. May we renounce any notion of righteousness apart from Christ. And Lord, would you be glorified as we give you the praise and the glory? Father, would you be pleased to rescue many broken homes and families and children, God, that have so been ensnared by the lie of this day? Lord, the American dream to acquire the world but forfeit our soul. God, would you help us to be a voice in the wilderness crying out, Come to Christ, he alone can give life. He alone can forgive. He alone can give you what you are looking for, which is forgiveness and reconciliation with their Creator. Father, use us, we pray. Enable us, equip us for your glory. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon. I preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.